This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in your podcast app. I, I really thank you kindly for the ability to talk a bit about something that I've always cared about since my days at UCSF as a genetics fellow when I was training and uh, wanted to really focus on trying to find therapies for this class of disorder called mitochondrial disease. I keep on going into mute and unmute. So first, uh, that my conflicts are listed here. Most of these, I'm a data monitoring committee member, and I do many clinical trials and keep registries for a variety of different groups who are working on better therapies and creating therapies for rare metabolic disorders. So as I was saying, the, the mitochondrion has always been my favorite organelle, and taking care of patients has been something uh, that I've wanted to do since my pediatric days. And I've seen mitochondrial patients come in to the hospital without very much we we're able to do as far as therapies. As I speak here today, there's still not a single FDA-approved therapy specifically for mitochondrial disease. Uh, there is a European uh, medication that I'll discuss in a little bit called adebinone that has been approved for the treatment of a mitochondrial eye condition. And today, I just want to, to get the overall view of how robust and wide the research has taken us as to uh, all the different types of clinical trials that are currently available. Uh, Dr. Mendelssohn gave an outstanding lecture and overview on diagnosing these types of conditions associated with intellectual disability. And one of the things that I like to uh, do and explain to my families is if we do come up with a diagnosis, perhaps there will be an active clinical trial that could be potentially useful in the care of an individual patient. So the mitochondria, as we know, are, uh, have multiple functions. Everybody knows that they're the powerhouse of the cell. They make energy. They house the electron transport chain uh, pictured here. But they also, in the middle of their matrix, house uh, many uh, different biochemical reactions, including fatty acid oxidation. The Krebs cycle is part of our mitochondrial energy production. And mitochondria also make free radicals. Often people say that free radicals are a byproduct of mitochondrial metabolism. I tend to look upon them as a product. They're a very important part of cell signaling. They're an important part of our cellular health. And they're an important part of our cell ability to just be able to tell the nucleus, make more mitochondria, I need more energy. So it's when free radical production is out of balance that problems occur. Mitochondria uh, also are part of multiple other metabolic reactions. I'm not going to say them all here, they're listed. And of course, also part of apoptosis or programmed cellular death. So part of why a cell dies and what happens during cellular death is energy production is not optimal or it's not working well. And there's a signal that is released that eventually leads to that cell passing away. Many of the therapies that I'm going to be talking about today are really going to be focused on keeping the lights on, so to speak. The cell might not have normal energy metabolism, but it's working okay. Uh, I, I use driving analogies relatively commonly. 
So if you're going up to the city, uh, San Francisco, for those of you who are not from the Bay Area, and you need to do a 30-minute drive up the highway, uh, you might get there a little bit later if you're driving an old car that doesn't go very fast, if there's no traffic, but you'll still get there. Uh, so a lot of the therapies that I'm going to be discussing today are really designed on keeping the lights on or the engine running in cells that are not normal because of a genetic problem. This is a cartoon of the mitochondrial respiratory chain or the mitochondrial engine. You can see that it is coded for both nuclear and mitochondrial genes. So when I'm talking about mitochondrial disease, I'm not saying that this is all secondary to mitochondrial DNA problems. In children, about 80% of mitochondrial disease is nuclear. So they're the mom and dad are carriers typically for an autosomal recessive condition. Dominant and X-linked mitochondrial disease also exist, but for the most part, autosomal recessive mitochondrial disorders are the most common. So uh, as looked at here, you can see that complex two, for example, is completely coded for by the nucleus without any mitochondrial DNA complement whereas complex one has a mix of both nuclear and mitochondrial DNA coding subunits. When I think about the electron transport chain, I think about electrons going from complex one to two to three to four and eventually causing ATP to be be produced through complex five. It's akin to a water fl flowing down a stream where you go from one level to another different energy states and maybe pushing a water wheel at the end. So it's a simple concept, but I think one that we can keep in mind as we're thinking about the therapies for these types of disorders. Here's the famous uh, circular DNA, our mitochondrial DNA that is inherited from our mother. Uh, it is a coding system that codes for a, uh, approximately uh, 150 proteins in total, including the nuclear DNA. Uh, and the mitochondrial DNA is shown here. It has a variety of different polypeptide subunits or genes that code for structural components of the respiratory chain, as well as transfer RNAs and ribosomal RNAs. And the rest of the mitochondrion, uh, which takes about a thousand different proteins to make, is coded for by the nucleus. Mitochondrial inheritance is shown here in this cartoon where a mother who might have no or mild symptoms may pass on abnormal mitochondria or mitochondrial DNA to their children. And the bottleneck effect, the effect of transferring a high percentage of either normal or in this case, abnormal mitochondria can create a relatively high percentage of abnormal cells in the offspring. This is a stochastic occurrence. This happens by chance. So mitochondrial DNA disorders are quite variable in their effects that they have on the offspring because they'll affect different organ systems differently, different offspring, different children differently. And it's part of the challenge of dealing with counseling of families who have these types of disorders. But the point I really want to make is that the production and the, the manufacture, so to speak, of a mitochondrion takes nuclear genes and mitochondrial genes. And working together, they make the mitochondrial engine, the respiratory chain. And these two different uh, genomes are, are the, the cause of, of trouble if there's an impairment in either of them.
And this is just an illustration that is old, but still does the trick, showing a list of a variety of different genes involved in mitochondrial biogenesis, the making of mitochondrial, uh, the mitochondria, the great majority of which are in the black lettering, which are nuclear genes, and the minority shown in red being inherited as mitochondrial in nature. So what about the clinical presentation? These are conditions that can present at any age, involve any organ system, either isolated or in any combination. So when a person comes to me and asks, could I have mitochondrial disease? The answer is always yes. It's always a possibility. Uh, the question for me, though, what's the likelihood? How how certain can I be that this is where the problem is? Or is this a disorder that is non-mitochondrial, but might be affecting mitochondria function in a secondary fashion? So any organ system can be involved, but what we really see with the children that I care for are the neurological or neuromuscular problems coming to the forefront most of the time. These might include other issues like liver disease or heart disease or endocrine abnormalities, or you name it. However, it's the neuromuscular features that are most prominent typically. So what's a biochemical geneticist to do? Uh, we measure stuff. Uh, we look at organic acids, amino acids, things like that. If your mitochondrial engine is not working correctly, you'll make what I call biochemical smoke. And abnormalities might be found in amino acids or acyl carnitines or urine organic acids. These might not necessarily be diagnostic, but in an individual patient, at least help me as a clinician see how my patient is doing, in quotes, at a period of time and see if I layer on any therapies if things change. So they're part of what we do as a routine. More recently, there has been an interest in new biomarkers. Uh, fibroblast growth factor 21 or FGF21 is one of these. This is a cytokine that is upregulated in the liver uh, and is also expressed in muscle as part of a stress response. And it seems to be elevated in individuals with mitochondrial myopathies. However, the elevations that are seen in mitochondrial patients might also be seen in others, and they're not always elevated in all patients. Similarly, a, another a biomarker called the GDF15, which is a transforming growth factor beta superfamily protein, is also secreted by the liver, but in response to injury, and is, is induced in muscle in those who have defects of the uh, mitochondrial respiratory chain. It can be elevated in a variety of different other disorders, such as uh, pulmonary disease, diabetes, and ovarian cancer. So again, not specific. If we use them together, uh, I think that we might have a good idea in an individual patient as, as, far, as far as coming up with a biomarker to see if our therapies are having any differences. But just remember, these are now uh, available. At least the GDF-15 is a clickable test that you can send out and have ordered. I have not seen the, uh, the, the, the uh, uh, FGF-21 as, a, as an orderable test as yet, but I'm sure it will be coming relatively soon. They might have some use in an individual patient, but remember, these are not diagnostic, uh, but they might be useful as well. I tend to measure uh, glutathione levels because our work has shown that glutathione levels tend to be low in our mitochondrial patients, and they can be even lower and more 
dramatically reduced in times of illness. So this has also led to some ideas on different treatments. So this is courtesy of a colleague of mine, Dr. Cohen, uh, who uh, treats uh, many uh, individuals with uh, mitochondrial disorders out of Akron. And Bruce uh, kindly lent me his slide. I've made a few uh, minor adjustments to it. Uh, Dr. Mendelssohn has talked very nicely about the, the types of things that are done for diagnosing individuals with intellectual disability. And uh, some of the studies are mentioned here, uh, but really focusing on a patient who has a mitochondrial disorder, we typically measure a variety of biochemical markers, including glutathione levels, CoQ10 levels, sometimes uh, GDF15 and other things, as a baseline, just to see where our patients are at the beginning of, of diagnosis. As far as making a diagnosis, we really rely on, again, what has so nicely been outlined by Dr. Mendelssohn, next generation sequencing. What's missing from this slide? Muscle biopsy. You know, muscle biopsies were the, in quotes, gold standard with next generation sequencing. I just don't remember the last time I did a, a muscle biopsy for a diagnosis, although you might still need to do that because in some cases, especially mitochondrial DNA disorders that have large deletions, you might not be able to detect that in blood. We've been able to detect it in skin biopsy samples or even in urine samples because of the uh, urine samples contain epithelial sediment cells that uh, also are a more fixed cellular population that can be analyzed. But this is just a general uh, a diagnostic approach. We look at the biochemistry in blood and urine, and we do next generation sequencing. Now, how do you how do you diagnose clinically whether or not a patient has mitochondrial disease? There are many different diagnostic criteria, or at least some solid ones. I won't say many, but there are at least several good diagnostic criteria. I've, I've shown a couple here and given you an idea of what is currently used commonly as sort of a checklist, if you will, for clinical diagnosis of mitochondrial disease with different points being given to different clinical presentations, different metabolic presentations, different histochemistry, biochemistry findings, etc. And the, the issue here is depending upon the points given, you are either given a definite diagnosis, a probable diagnosis, or a possible diagnosis. And the, the possible diagnosis is an existential crisis for those who work in the field, because just about anybody can have a possible mitochondrial disease. That can lead to a lot of misinformation, a lot of misunderstanding down the, the road. So as a clinician, I tend to avoid the term possible mitochondrial disease, and I much prefer use, using something like genetic diagnosis uncertain to make it very clear that we do not have a diagnosis. Uh, mitochondrial dysfunction can be part of autoimmune diseases. It can be part of myopathies. It can be part of a lot of different types of conditions as a secondary finding. And I don't want to mislabel my patients. So I'm careful with the, making them a, giving them a diagnosis uh, without carefully thinking through some diagnostic criteria. All right, so that's the background. And in the next 20 minutes or, or so, I just wanna go give you an, an idea about the types of treatments that we're now thinking of and that are in the, in the works for these types of patients. Starting with a case, we have a seven month old female 
was developing completely normally, but presented with altered mental status, not, not looking at her parents normally after a febrile illness, followed by developmental regression, seizures, and a movement disorder. It's a, it's a classic case uh, of, uh, of uh, Lee syndrome. Uh, she also had increased lactate, increased alanine, which could be a nonspecific marker for increased lactate in the amino acids, as well as nonspecific findings in the acylcarnitine profile that were abnormal, but not specifically diagnostic, and several unusual tricarboxylic acid cycle intermediates in the urine, again, not diagnostic, but unusual. Uh, Next generation sequencing detected variants in the SIRF1 gene, which is a gene that causes Lee syndrome, complex four deficiency specifically. I'm not going to go into detail in, in, in as far as this case goes, but just use it as an illustration as, of a common clinical presentation where a child who's developing normally develops brain disease, often in the basal ganglia, the deep gray matter of the brain. And as outlined in the slide, no therapy is available. Just keep that in the back of your mind because I'm going to say perhaps. That being said, we have a long list of potential mitochondrial therapies. Any one of these I could probably spend 40 minutes or more talking about. So this is going to be by, by necessity an overview. I'm going to focus on some of the uh, treatments and therapies under investigation that are in the, the bold uh, at present time. But let's let's get on with this. So the classic view of treating mitochondrial disease is just throw a bunch of antioxidants at it. Isn't the mitochondrial problem just a, a question of balance between too much antioxidants or too much oxidants and not enough antioxidants? So just give a bunch of antioxidants and things will be fine. It's not the case. That's not what's been found. Uh, nonetheless, we do have consensus guidelines that allow us to say, uh, at least this is what we as a group of specialists are advising our patients. You should try CoQ10. You should try alpha lipoic acid. You should try B vitamins, especially riboflavin. And those are the core supplements that we recommend. Uh, they are based in part on a randomized controlled clinical trial. Uh, there aren't many in mitochondrial disease. I'll say that uh, from, from the start, but this is a, an early trial done by my colleague in Canada, uh, doc, Dr. Tarnopolsky, where there was a, a double-blind placebo-controlled study using uh, various supplements. Uh, and the, the white bars here are placebo, the black bars are, are, are the, uh, the, the treated group. And following treatment, depending upon the various uh, categories of patients in this uh, small trial, there was an improvement in resting lactate. There was a decrease in the amount of uh, biomarkers that are reflective of oxidative uh, stress. And there was at least a, a movement towards an improvement in the clinical marker. So there is actually some evidence that these things work. However, I want this to be a, a take-home message. It's not as simple as just balancing uh, a throwing a bunch of antioxidants into a system. Our cells are not just bags of, of goop that you, you throw uh, things at to, to bring into balance. I, I'm not asking you to even memori memorize this, uh, this lovely slide showing some, some intricacies of cellular biochemistry and circuit signaling uh, done by uh, Dean Jones. Uh, it's just to highlight that our cells are complex. And 
what the one message I want to to, to give you uh, today is that the current treatments that we're trying to uh, bring into the clinic are really based on a much improved understanding of basic biochemistry. And it's not, so it's not shoveling antioxidants into a bag of oxidants. It's working with biochemistry to come up with a better therapy. Uh, there are a variety of different new drugs that are coming into play. Supplements are still very much part of what we do. Repurposing old drugs is also being looked at and new therapies are, are part of the scene as well. Uh, just to show you the different types of things that are in development, antioxidants are still part of what we use, but I want you to, to remember that all is not necessarily uh, as labeled. I'm going to focus on EPI-743. It's been labeled as an antioxidant, but it's a little bit more complex than that, of course. There are a variety of different compounds that are worked that are being used for mitochondrial biogenesis. There are different compounds that are improving mitochondrial membrane stability. There are those that are targeting uh, mitophagy, which is an important part of our uh, cellular maintenance. And there are even enzyme therapies coming up. Gene therapy is an important part of what's uh, what's being developed for specific mitochondrial disorders in which there's a very specific enzymatic deficiency or a very specific target like the eye to go after. This is a cartoon that uh, we'll sort of go through very briefly, just so you can get an idea of where the treatments are. I'm going to show you different categories of, of therapies and development, as, and as I go through, I'll highlight that. But let's start with a more targeted approach for a child that uh, presented in, in teenage years. Uh, he had altered mental status following an influenza-like uh, illness, developed a stroke-like episode with an inability to use the right side of his body, uh, and that was showing a, a correlate on MRI and also had significant lactic acidemia. Classic appearance for Milos, or mitochondrial encephalomyopathy, lactic acidosis, and stroke-like episodes a multi-organ system disease that is indeed a mitochondrial DNA point mutation disorder that causes a poor perfusion secondary to endothelial cell dysfunction. It's thought at heart to be secondary to a deficiency of nitric oxide. So here's biochemistry coming into play. Uh, the, the biochemistry of note in, is uh, something that we've noticed in our MILOS patients is they tend to have low citrulline. Uh, low citrulline is caused by an inability to, uh, to make citrulline from precursors because of a lack of energy, a lack of ATP, for example. And it's also important to note that uh, citrulline and arginine are, are linked. If you provide a body with uh, arginine, you will produce citrulline. Citrulline in turn and arginine are also linked to nitric oxide synthesis. So in our MILOS patients, we have low citrulline, we have low arginine, we have, uh, we have low nitric oxide. And one therapy that has been used, this is uh, out of our colleagues in Japan in an open label study, is arginine. And using arginine in an open label fashion, these bars represent stroke-like episodes. You can see a before and after arginine decreased the number of stroke-like episodes. So it's commonly used nowadays as a therapy for MILOS. Our colleague, uh, uh, Fernando Scaglia at the Baylor is looking at the use of citrulline in MILOS. And citrulline looks like it is able to produce nitric oxide even better. So 
how do we treat our patients uh, in a moment? Uh, taurine is another part of the picture that I find fascinating. And again, just based upon biochemistry, taurine is a, a semi-essential amino acid that is very important in regulating our energy metabolism. And in MELOS, it happens to be that the specific genetic defect affects the, uh, the structure of a tRNA that is involved with taurine. It prevents taurine conjugating with a very important base that is part of this tRNA, resulting in its inefficiency in making protein in the mitochondria. So you have a combination of factors in MELOS. You have citrulline deficiency, you have arginine deficiency, and you have a taurine responsive molecule. So how do we treat? We give our patients arginine and citrulline and taurine. But that's very specific because of the basic biochemistry involved in that condition. Of course, we do the general things like we have a special protocol if they're undergoing anesthesia, certain things to avoid, certain drugs to avoid, and all types of mitochondrial disorders are also listed here as well. But I just want to use this as a, a case of what do I do as a clinician when faced with a child or an adult coming to see me with this specific genetic change? And it's nice that there are at least some therapies that are targeted targeting the biochemistry and the genetics of that condition. So moving along, let's, let's look at the, the nucleosides. This is another uh, therapy that is targeted to specific mitochondrial diseases uh, based upon what the underlying biochemistry and genetics involves. Uh, one such disorder is called meningi or mitochondrial neurogastrointestinal encephalomyopathy. It's easier to say meningi. This is a recessive condition that causes a deficiency of the enzyme thymidine phosphorylase. And thymidine phosphorylase is key in mitochondrial DNA maintenance. If you do not have this enzyme working correctly, your mitochondrial DNA is not maintained in the mitochondria and the cells subsequently undergo dysfunction. These patients present with a leukoencephalopathy and multiple other systemic problems, especially intestinal dysmotility and GI problems, but can also have eye findings. Shown here in this cartoon, a deficiency of the enzyme thymidine phosphorylase subsequently leads to an impairment in mitochondrial DNA maintenance. So how do we treat this? Uh, one way of doing it is enzyme replacement therapy with bone marrow transplantation. Michio Hirano at the Columbia has done a beautiful job here. However, patients who undergo bone marrow transplantation normalize their enzymatic activity and the abnormalities that are the biochemical abnormalities decrease, but there's a mortality of over 50%. Uh, so in our group, we use the liver transplantation because thymidine uh, Phosphorylase is highly present in the liver, and we have achieved very good results with 100% survival so far in only four patients that we know of who have undergone this procedure. Uh, and it as well decreases the thymidine levels, which is our biomarker in this uh, condition. So as I said, we, we treated four patients, and their, their disease symptoms stabilized and even improved uh, following liver transplantation, which might be a better approach than the the bone marrow transplantation because it might be uh, less uh, taxing on the, on, the, on the body. Another uh, defect that is related to 
nucleotides and nucleosides in the mitochondria is uh, called TK2 deficiency. Uh, this is a, a disorder that also uh, causes problems in maintaining mitochondrial DNA. And currently, there's a clinical trial going on that is co- testing a variety of oral supplements uh, called nucleosides to replace what is missing because of the enzymatic block. And hopefully, this will maintain the mitochondrial DNA integrity. Another approach for treating mitochondrial disease has really looked at the, uh, the effects of free radical production on membrane stability, especially on cardiolipin, which is a very key component of the, the mitochondrial inner membrane. Elamipratide is a medication that is given via injections, and it's a tetrapeptide that interacts with this cardiolipin, a very important part of the mitochondrial membrane, and helps to maintain its integrity. There was a large clinical trial, a randomized double-blind clinical trial for mitochondrial myopathy that uh, was based upon the the early open-label studies that showed a protective effect of this medication. But unfortunately, there was not a significant improvement in the primary endpoints, which included a a questionnaire on uh, primary mitochondrial myopathy symptoms and the six-minute walk test. So although this is a very promising drug, it was done in a placebo-controlled manner with over 200 subjects. The findings were negative. This this medication is continuing to be developed, but uh, unfortunately, this broad clinical trial that included patients who had both nuclear and and, uh, and mitochondrial DNA defects did not show efficacy. Now to the, the heart of the matter, what most people talk about is the antioxidants. And we'll talk about adebinone and EPI-743. As I mentioned, adebinone is the only drug available that is currently approved for mitochondrial disease therapy and has been approved for therapy in Europe uh, for treatment of labor hereditary optic neuropathy because although the primary endpoint was not met, post hoc analysis did show that all secondary endpoints or were met in certain patients with discordant visual acuities. So it's thought that adebinone is helpful in this specific condition, and it has been approved for therapy. The, uh, the LHON, or labor hereditary optic neuropathy, interestingly, is a target of gene therapy as well. This is just one example of a gene therapy experiment where a gene therapy vector was injected on one, uh, one side using the other eye as a control, so to speak. However, it looks like there's some leakage of the gene therapy vector because both eyes improved after injection. So stay tuned for this story. But at this moment, uh, gene therapy looks like it might be a viable uh, method for treating at least localized disorder that affects the eye function. Moving on to EPI743 or Epi743. Epi743 is a quinone. It kind of looks like ubiquinone or coenzyme Q10. And it's been labeled often as an antioxidant, but the actual mechanism of action is more complex. It's related to this uh, cellular cellular, uh, mechanism called ferroptosis, which is a form of cell death involving iron. And what epi743 looks like it does is it improves the function of the glutathione system to rev up a glutathione peroxidase that helps to inhibit the consequences of ferroptosis. Uh, 
So even the simple CoQ10-like analog has complex findings. And here's EPI743 showing its biochemical similarity to adebinone and coenzyme Q10, at least on a structural basis. It appears that it prevents ferroptosis in patient cells that have a, a variety of different pediatric disease syndromes associated with epilepsy. It might be useful in Lee syndrome and, and other conditions that are associated with seizures. And it looks like the cytoprotection was really related to its ability to decrease the lipid uh, oxidation. So you can see in this uh, slide here that with the increase in the epi743 concentration, there is a subsequent decrease in lipid peroxidation rate. And they think that this could be part of the cellular activity that is leading to the benefit of this medication. It's currently under study in a double-blind placebo-controlled trial for patients with mitochondrial disease and seizures. Moving, I think, along to the, the, the last part, or at least I think is the last part of my talk, so we're going to the nucleus. We're going to just in a, in a couple of minutes just go through some of the new therapies that are related to what's called mitochondrial biogenesis, using the nuclear signaling pathways to improve mitochondrial biogenesis, making better and more mitochondria. One approach is using specific molecules that activate cell signaling pathways, one of which is this called the PPAR delta activation, peroxisome proliferator activated receptor delta. These names just trip off the tongue, but PPAR delta is responsible for regulating multiple metabolic pathways and is now under study in a mitochondrial myopathy double-blind placebo-controlled trial. So it's exciting that these trials are coming out that are double-blinded and placebo-controlled. But note, this is not just throwing a bunch of antioxidants at a system. It's, it's using a, a relatively small concentration of a specific medication that is designed to improve mitochondrial biogenesis. Another approach is to use the, uh, the rapamycin pathway or mTORC in inhibition. Uh, mTORC is a signaling pathway uh, that is involved in mitochondrial autophagy and uh, the clearance of damaged mitochondria. Uh, Everolimus, serolimus, other types of similar drugs actually uh, are rapamycin analogs that can improve the, uh, the function of the, the cell related to, we think it's related to autophagy, although there is some debate there. So these molecules are also being developed for use of uh, uh, treatments for mitochondrial brain disease in particular. Other areas of interest inv involve the AMPK pathways or sirtuin pathways. These are signaling pathways that upregulate, again, mitochondrial biogenesis through either, uh, excuse me while I take a drink of water, through either the AMP pathway or using NAD uh, plus. Mitochondrial diseases are associated with low NAD uh, plus, so an increase in this molecule might be helpful. And the uh, activation of AMP kinase can also be helpful in these mitochondrial signaling pathways related to mitochondrial biogenesis. Uh, one such uh, clinical trial is going to be using an NAD plus modulator that has been found in cell models to increase uh, levels of uh, 
sirtuins and kinase and PGC1 with subsequent increased ATP and subsequent decrease in lactate and reactive oxygen species. Uh, finally, in the last minute, a, a few slides showing a different approach uh, that we're doing in, in our group that is related to also AMP kinase, but uh, it's directly stimulating AMP kinase. The molecules that I talked to about before uh, cause a, a, an increase in AMP kinase through some uh, decrease in mitochondrial function. Uh, this is a pathway that we can directly stimulate AMP kinase using small molecules. And we've shown that this can improve uh, the signaling pathway for mitochondrial biogenesis, as well as increase enzymes related to decreasing oxidative stress. In, in a mouse model of mitochondrial eye injury, pretreatment with one of our uh, one of the the analogs that we're using uh, was shown to be protective of the neuroepithelial lining of the of the eye and improved the uh, the function of the eye on uh, electroretinography as well last slide here that I don't have time to talk about but I, I didn't forget it's just too much to go into there are uh, experiments underway and treatments underway, especially in the United Kingdom, that are related to actually transferring normal mitochondria to the, the, the ova uh, of mothers who happen to be affected by mitochondrial disease in order for their offspring to have a decreased chance of having their mitochondrial problems. So this is either by maternal spindle transfer or pronuclear transfer. That's also ongoing, but not in the United States as yet. So in the meantime, uh, you know, exercise, uh, be healthy, eat some dark chocolate because they, they contain mitochondrial biogenesis agents like epicatechin. A little bit of sirtuins through the red wine can also be helpful. And the only message after all of this stuff that I wanted to convey is that we have a really robust pipeline. So there is hope here. We have not had a good record of coming up with treatments or therapies for mitochondrial disease as yet, but stay tuned. Uh, based on biochemistry, we have had really good, good uh, I think, uh, paths to, uh, to come up with new therapies. The, there might not be a best approach, and all the approaches that I've mentioned today might be complementary to one, one another. Uh, randomized uh, controlled clinical trials are the, the mainstay nowadays, which is really nice to see in the field. So although it took uh, not too long from the Wright brothers to a landing on the moon, we're hoping to make similar rapid progress in the field of mitochondrial disease. So thank you for your, your attention. I bring to your mind if you want to, uh, if you have patients, you have other questions, here's a couple of good websites to go to. One is the North American Mitochondrial Disease Consortium, just Google NAMDC or the Mitochondrial Care Network to find a mitochondrial center nearby you if you have a patient or have any questions about mitochondrial disease. Thanks again for, for the opportunity to, uh, to talk. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv. 